Welcome to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Yeah, you can go ahead and be seated. Um, here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And we believe that means that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so as we gather and we get together, um, whether it's online or whether it's here in person, um, we spend time going into God's word to hear his story and how it impacts and helps us understand our story. And so we began a series a couple weeks ago in the, the book of 2 Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that we've called Endure, Finding Courage in Weakness. And so if you uh, are, are with us or, or if you haven't grabbed one, you can go ahead and grab one of our discipleship guides out in the foyer, um, and that'll kind of show you where we're going to be at during this season. Uh, and so today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, chap- or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn there. And, and as you're turning there and as you're getting ready and, and we look at these verses, I want you to ask yourself... Like, who do you rely on? What do you rely on? Like, what is it that you look to for stability, for direction, for, for consistency, right? When, when you get unsettled, what are you putting your feet down on to say, okay, I'm grounded, I'm stable, I can rely on these people. I can rely on this institution. I can rely on this community. And, and, and I think if, like, you know, if we're Christians, you came into church today, you're like, no, I know, I know the answer, right? It's the Sunday school answer. We rely on Jesus, right? We rely on God. And yes, and amen. And we're going to, we're definitely going to, going to hit that like a, like a drum today. But the reality is we can cognitively, if we're in the church, if we're Christians, say, yeah, I know I, I rely on God. And yet we know it up here, but when we get unsettled, when we get a little concerned, we functionally rely on something else, rely on someone else. We don't respond to the world um, as if God's actually in control of it. And so we start to grasp for different handles to try to say, okay, this is what I'm going to rely on. This is who I'm going to rely on. And so we plan and we prepare and and we promise uh, ourselves or others that that this is how we're going to live our lives. This is what we're going to do to pursue flourishing. And yet it is so hard to find people, to find institutions, to find others, to find anything that we find that is truly reliable. And so if we are going to actually endure, then we should be looking for things that are reliable, that can actually guarantee that they're going to show up when they say they're going to show up. They're going to deliver on the promises that they've made. And so as you've kind of started to answer the question, hopefully, like, like, what do you rely on or who do you rely on? I want you to think for a second about who's let you down. Who's disappointed you? And when that's happened, how have you responded? And and maybe I'm imparting this a bit, but like when people let you down, why does it sting so much? Why does it hurt? Is it because we've placed expectations on others that are just not, you know, know, reliable or or excuse me, that aren't, aren't reasonable? Or maybe they just legit failed. 
right? People do that, right? And what's amazing is the closer someone is to us, the more we rely on them, the more um, we believe that they should be, be helping us, encouraging us, the greater opportunity they have to hurt us. And the more it stings when they disappoint us. And this happens right in, in our families, right? Maybe somebody's disappointed you so much that this marriage is no longer reliable. That this relationship you have with somebody else is, is no longer reliable. Or maybe you grew up and it's like, yeah, mom and dad are supposed to be reliable. But what happens when mom and dad aren't? And so we pull back and we're like, oh, I'll just rely on myself. And then regularly we look in the mirror and realize how many times we failed ourselves. And so we're, we have a challenge too, particularly when like, you know, well, all right, I'll look to, I'll look to leaders, you know, maybe I'll, look, maybe I'll look to leaders in the church. Anybody ever had leaders in the church fail you? Like, well, in the church, you know, it's stable government. Government's stable, right? Super reliable all the time. Nobody ever is disappointed with how government works, Right? You're like, no, no, I mean, I'm, I'm for government. You know, maybe it's pop culture, right? You know, you, you got your hero in sports or, or, or music or art, and, and, and then you realize, oh, no, they, they failed somehow. And so we seek reliability, and I think particularly in leaders, we seek integrity. We want them to be reliable. We want them to be the same people all the time to encourage us. In our families, we need that. In our relationships, we need some reliability. And so we, we have got to ground ourselves in something deeper and more firm and, and, and more reliable than, than I am, than we are, or even with each other. And we said this last week, right? We need to not just look inward anymore or look outward, but we actually need to look upward if we're going to move onward. And so today, here in 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at what it means to have an enduring guarantee. But, but I'll just preface these verses by saying things don't start out that well. And so look at verses 12 through 17. I'll read them. They're, they, they can be a little bit awkward as they're read. And so just try to stick with me and I'll explain what's going on here. Verse 12 through 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this. For our boast is this, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, the testimony of our conscience that we've behaved in the world with simplicity, or that word also means integrity, and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you'll fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. Then on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh? Did I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? All right, let's, let's stop here. What's happening in these verses? Like, what's, what's actually going on, right? Paul's written about the gospel, and he's, he's said, you can find your comfort in God, and hey, would you, would, would you pray for me? I've, I've been afflicted and, 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 and been hurt and even depressed, and, and then now he's, it seems like he's talking about his schedule, 
And so what's going on here is that Paul has actually changed his mind, if you will, changed his plans on when he was going to show up and visit the Corinthians. And, and so he's giving a bit of an explanation to them uh, because Paul didn't come through the way they expected him to. They had expectations of when he was going to be here. And so in some sense, these, this text that we're reading here, as a, as a pastor writing to his church with great passion and emotion and care, is Paul is actually, believe it or not, a little bit defensive. He's, he's a little bit like, you know, hey, you're accusing me of a few things. They, they've apparently, through different messengers, accused him of not being sincere not being a man of integrity, not being someone um, who, whose reasoning is sound. That, oh, Paul, you're just using worldly wisdom. You're too pragmatic. You're not being led by the Spirit. And so, in part, Paul's being defensive, but they're also being, can we just say, a little ingracious? See, they're even saying he's double-minded. You say yes and yes and no and no in the same breath. Right? Is there few things more infuriating than when somebody, like you can't actually trust what's coming out of their mouth? Or they say something to you in person, but then later you know they really believe something else? That is so frustrating. It's so difficult. That's what they're uh, uh, um, accusing Paul of doing. And so they're challenging how Paul's engaged with the world, how he's engaged with them. He didn't show up when he said they would, although we know in chapter two that he had a painful visit. He had to do some church discipline there because, because there were still issues unresolved in this church. And so for, for these people, they're, they're asking Paul, you know, uh, you know, why are you not following through as you've said? And yet the reality is the like, if Paul's unreliable, they are incredibly unreliable as a church. Like, no pastor and no church is like, you know what we should do? Let's learn about what it means to be a church by following the example of the Corinthians. And I say that because if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, the entire letter breaks down how unreliable they are. There's deep divisions, there's selfishness, there's a lack of generosity, so much so that Paul is going to hit it again in chapter 8 and 9 in this letter. There's sexual morality, there's, there's people showing uh, partiality to one another. In fact, they were getting drunk on communion wine. They were, like, some people were getting so full on communion bread that their like stomachs are swelled up and others aren't getting anything. So before they call out Paul, maybe they should look at themselves a little bit. These are people, to be clear, in need of God's grace. They've received God's grace. And so they also, if you've received God's grace, you need to be somebody who gives God's grace to, to others. And so Paul's a loving pastor, and so he doesn't reject them, and he doesn't just say, I'm never going to see you again. In fact, actually, he cares enough about them to say, I don't want to see your graceless culture continue where things are happening in the life of the church that he says are so unspeakable the Gentiles don't talk about them. Like translation, like the Kardashians are a better family than most of the Corinthians are. And so that's like a, such a dated reference. We'll move on. Okay, so... What Paul does is he says, I want to reset your culture of your church. I want you to have a culture of grace, a culture of charity. And what he's saying is not every time something or someone doesn't come through the way we want to doesn't mean they had bad intentions. 
Paul's actually saying that, yeah, none of us are perfect, and yeah, you're disappointed with Paul, but they found themselves so disappointed with Paul that they were getting disillusioned with him, and they didn't even want his influence anymore. So the stakes are actually kind of high. And so Paul doesn't reject them, as you said, he reshapes their culture. And as you think about what a gospel culture is and what does it mean to rely on the gospel in the context of a church, like there's hard questions that have to come up. Um, author and uh, therapist Brene Brown, I don't know if you're familiar with her and her work, um, super popular, um, you know, some, some great work that she's done. I'm not sure if she's a believer or not, but I think there's some, some common grace and some common truth uh, in terms of what she presents. And one of her most frequent questions she asks an individual or asks a group is this. I want you to think about it. Do you think most people are doing the best they can? Do you think most people are doing the best they can? We talked about this at staff meeting, like many a dinner party have been had talking about these types of questions. And and for myself and many others, often the answer is, no, have you seen people? Of course they're not doing the best they can, right? And so like it comes from this place uh, that I think is driven from a place of judgment. Right now, I know people can do better. I, I certainly hope they can because, man, most people I know are not doing good enough, right? And so it, it comes from this place of judgment or I think maybe for myself and maybe even for you, maybe when you answer no, it actually comes from a place of shame because you know your failure. I know my failure. I know when I could do a little bit better. Or maybe when I'm like, no, I don't think that's my best, right? Like if I go to the gym and do four hours on an exercise bike because I'm training for a race, and then afterwards I'm like, Qdoba with queso, double meat. Of course I want guac, right? I know that's not my best. I've got a blender at home and protein powder and all the things. Right? But like we know we let ourselves down all the time. And so maybe you're super gracious and you're like, yeah, no, I, I, I know I'm not good enough and I can do better, but, but, but I think everybody else is doing so great. I don't, certainly wouldn't want to be harsh. And maybe you are just more gracious and that's awesome. But I bet even if you answer yes, most people are doing the best they can. I wonder how often you actually apply that to yourself and actually give yourself that measure of grace or that measure of of understanding and charity that that you might struggle because you maybe know you don't don't do your best. And and I want to be clear, right, because we don't want to just live in the world of of psychology, but we also have good theology, right? The the Bible says that the reality is because of sin, all of us have missed the mark, right? So so think about, like, like remember the, the game as a kid, like Battleship, right? You flip it open, right? And you call out like B7. And they're like, what do they say? No, miss, right? So which tab do you put up, right? The white one, the I've missed tab. The reality is because of sin, even when you're doing your best and you're aiming at B7, because you think maybe there's a submarine there, you miss. That's part of what sin is. There's a miss the mark aspect of it. There's also, um, uh, the, the Bible uses the word iniquity, which means bent out of shapeness, which means the reality is because of sin, all of us are not just a little, but a lot broken. 
And what that means is none of us are actually doing God's best. None of us are doing it perfect. And yet at the same time, it also means that because of sin, because of iniquity, maybe there's times where we are literally doing our best. And it is for sure not good enough. And so this should lead us to, to places of re- recognizing as well that we're in a fallen and broken world so that there's our sin and then there's the, the circumstances in the world we find ourselves in that's broken and it hinders our flourishing. And so if we're going to have a gospel culture, then we need to recognize sin in ourselves, recognize imperfection in ourselves, recognize we are going to see it and find it in others, and then respond and react, not with greater pride, but with greater humility. We need to be humble people. See, Paul is appealing to them in some sense to have some mutual respect, to rely on the grace of God. See, when when Paul didn't show up, when Paul didn't come through for them in the way that they thought, when when Paul wasn't reliable in the way they thought he should be, they, they could have been worried about him. They could have asked about him. They could, have, they, they could have like, oh no, Paul didn't show up. I wonder what happened. Like, remember, this is the first century and Corinth is, is on a major highway where, where there's, there's crime, right? There's bandits and other such things, right? There's lots of things that could have gone wrong for Paul. We know as well that he suffered greatly in Asia. In Ephesus, Paul found himself in the middle of a riot. And yet, while Paul has concern for them, he's saying, um, Y'all could have, if you were worried, asked some questions. You know, maybe actually want to hear someone's story. Paul says he's going to boast in the day of the Lord. What that means is there is a day when we all meet Jesus and everything in our lives becomes revealed. And Paul says, in my conscience and in in prayer to God and, and in his grace, I'm incredibly confident that if you knew everything that was happening in Paul's ministry, that the Corinthians would understand why he didn't show up. Like if you knew about the riot in Ephesus that I found myself in, if you knew the circumstances that I've had to deal with in order to make ministry work, you might see Paul differently. And I think that brings us to kind of this this other idea of a gospel culture where there's mutual respect. There's a word I want us to to hold and embrace and and sing deeply, and that's the word curiosity. That maybe when we see others not doing their best, or not doing what we think is their best, or they should be doing, maybe it's an opportunity to actually ask questions. To be curious, but see, we don't do that, right? We just, we make assumptions, right? We, we know how we function. We know how we respond. We know our story. And so then we impart that on everyone else in their stories and assume they should react the same way that we do or have the same experiences that we do. Or if we pulled ourselves up for our bootstraps, they should too. And so Paul's encouraging them towards greater humility and empathy instead of just being prideful and callous because that, that's what the Corinthians were. They knew that the reason Paul didn't show up was because he was vacillating. He was double-minded. He wasn't sincere. He was pragmatic. And Paul's like, whoa, 
I mean, I hate to be a little defensive, but y'all are coming at me pretty intense. Right? I think that's something else we need to recognize in a culture of grace, right? I mean, somebody comes at you, even if you're like super humble and you just, you want to hear from the Spirit and you want to be in community, when somebody brings up something to you that's challenging it, you're going to put a wall up for a second. And sometimes there's things that are there and that wall needs to come down and there needs to be humility and repentance and that's how we shape and change one another. But Paul's confident that man, if you knew the whole story and when we become aware of other people's stories and their experiences, it can be incredibly illuminating to understand why they might act the way they do. This might require you to actually think about your story a little bit. What journey have you been on? Who have you relied on that's failed you and now you've, you've, you've made coping mechanisms for that? Where have you failed and felt shame and this is what you do to cover that? And so, and where have you been ingracious where, where maybe you just need to have a posture of listening, ask better questions, get to actually enter into people's stories and try to understand what's been going on in their life? Okay, next part. What I love about this gospel culture that Paul's trying to set is, is that he asks hard questions, that there's mutual respect, and there's also gracious vulnerability. Paul actually leads his church with his vulnerability. And he does so, I say graciously, because grace means you haven't earned it. The Corinthian church is not who you'd call safe people right? They're not the best people that you should be sharing your junk with because um, they're super litigious. They've been suing one another. So th this might be the people like, man, I, I thought I was supposed to share with these folks. Oh my gosh, they are just building up a case against me. And yet, Paul is so gracious to them. He is vulnerable with them, even when they haven't earned it. They're not safe, right? He's told them about his depression, his despair, how it's driven him to despise life itself. He's had suicidal thoughts. He's, he's one of them, he says, to not be uninformed about the trials of Asia. Like, he wants to know, wants them to know what he's gone through. So by the time he's explaining why he hasn't shown up, he's given them a window to his difficulty. And by that, doing that, he's leading with example to say, I'm gonna lead with my weakness. And maybe, if you respond with graciousness as well, we can both put our guns down and actually enjoy gospel community where we shape one another, when we lead with vulnerability. And so I wanna say this, that the truth remains that while, while Paul is saying, hey, I'm, I'm unimpeachable on this right now, in no way, shape, or form, we'll see this throughout 2 Corinthians, does that mean Paul's perfect? Paul knows he's not perfect. Part of us understanding the gospel begins with knowing we are not perfect. We will find fault. And if you're starting to look around at everybody else, you will always find fault. You will always find inconsistencies. You will always find and project wrong motives on others. But in this case, Paul's saying, yeah, I, I did not come through for you. And, and there's actually an explanation. There's actually a good reason. And so while we can be weak and inconsistent and unreliable um, and we can only guarantee what we're able to produce and protect, we're just not strong enough to overcome. We're not consistent enough to be like the people that, that people rely on. We're not faithful enough to guarantee our own endurance. 
And so while they accuse Paul of vacillating, being kind of back and forth, maybe he was. Maybe he is. Right? Again, you'll find fault in others if you want to look for it. You'll find hypocrisy in others if you are looking for it. And so the reality is we can accuse and be right at times of calling out hypocrisy in one another, of of vacillating, of not being reliable. And so I think what happens is we begin to actually do that with God because we begin to think that maybe God's not reliable. Maybe God's not consistent because rather than recognizing that God's different than us, we sometimes think that God is just like us. So he's inconsistent. He fails. And so Paul can be accused of vacillating because he's just a man, but but we need to actually see that, that God is somebody who is not unreliable. God is not like us. And so these next verses, Paul kind of redirects to, to what's true. I mean, if these first few verses are just defensiveness and what's going on and why is the situation broken, we need some good news here, right? Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul just kind of shifts the whole conversation. He says this, As surely as God is faithful, our word to use not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. Hold on to this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So while we're weak, we're inconsistent, we're not reliable. God is always faithful. And Paul says, God's fulfilled all of his promises in Christ. Paul's boasting in the Lord. He wants to point the Corinthians to who they can truly rely on. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to be reliable, but it means that we should be pointing one another to who is truly reliable, who can truly guarantee endurance. And so part of Paul's defensiveness is because as the church has begun to kind of call out Paul's character for not showing up on time, doubt has been sown among the Corinthians on what's true about the gospel. Because, oh, if we can't rely on Paul to show up when he says he will, maybe the things he said about who Jesus Christ is and who we are in response isn't reliable. And we'll see later in this letter that the other teachers have kind of come in who just seem super spiritual, but they've perverted and twisted the gospel. And so Paul's defensive in part because he wants them to know that the gospel is reliable. He, he, he's having his authority undermined, not because Paul cares about his authority, but because of what it means about the truth of the gospel. That there needs to be good clarity around doctrine, that the gospel that he's spoken and written to them, when it says our word that they've brought to them, that he's preached, as well as Timothy, as well as Silvanus, they were saying it was insincere, that it was compromised of integrity, and he's saying, no, we didn't vacillate, we weren't double-minded. He's saying, the gospel is holistically true and reliable. You're not gonna find inconsistencies in it. He's bringing them back, really, I think, to a big question that we have about God. Is God actually trustworthy? Is God actually reliable? 
in a way that I can place my faith in him and be secure, be protected, endure through difficulties? Is God reliable? And this is a question that has rung out from humanity for eons. I mean, if you know your Bible, I mean, literally, like, after God creates everything good in the beginning, the first question, the first hint of sin, the first hint of rebellion was actually asking, did God really say? Is God really reliable is what that question is. And all the times we seek reliability and stability in something or someone else other than God, we're answering the question with, no, God's not reliable, but I know this is, until it fails us. And we move on to another idol, to another relationship, to, to, to even ourselves, and we find ourselves constantly disappointed. See, in the Old Testament, in, in Numbers chapter 23, verse 15, this question kind of rings out again, and there's this prophet talking to this guy, uh, and he's asking this rhetorical question. Again, I think it kind of rings throughout generations. And it's a rhetorical question. He says this, Is God not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not fulfill it? Right? It's rhetorically asking, like, is God reliable? And Paul's saying Jesus is the proof that all that God has said isn't vain and empty promises, but actually is the fullness of God's affirmation that he is true and that he is reliable. And we can find comfort in this. When we answer the question, is God reliable, with yes, then it leads us to, to great hope and to great peace and to great comfort. And so I don't want us, and Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to have a lack of clarity around Christ. Everything God has ever said about how he's gonna love, how he's gonna protect, how he's gonna save, how he's gonna bless, how he's gonna carry his people, all of those promises find their yes in Christ. In our weakness, we're strengthened by the grace of God. In our floundering, we're steadied by the faithfulness of God. When we are discouraged, we can have hope in the reliability of God who fulfills all of his divine promises in Christ. And this verse right here is, is one of the verses that helps us understand what this whole book is about. See, if you come to the Bible and you think it's primarily about you, then you're going to read this from a lens of this whole book is about you. And what Paul's saying is, no, actually, all of God's word, it is for you, it is for me, it is for us, but it's not about us because we're not the hero of our story. This whole book is about Jesus and this isn't like some concept that just certain churches believe or whatever. Like This is Jesus himself teaching this. When Jesus died and he was resurrected, he meets his disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, and they don't recognize him right away. And, and they're in this place of, of, of brokenness, of hopelessness. And Jesus starts to do an Old Testament Bible study. We see this in Luke chapter 24, where he says he walks them through the entire Old Testament and shows them how it's really all about him. See, there's no good news in the gospel if it doesn't include Jesus. 
So that means all of our focus of reliability needs to be on Christ, on Jesus, who's fully God, who's fully man, who lived the life that none of us have lived. See, Jesus never missed that battleship mark. Every time Jesus fires, it's a hit. See, Jesus died the death we deserve too for sin. He rose again so that we could have new life now. We could have new life forever. And so as he, as he tells this Bible study, he's saying, hey, you, look at the Old Testament. When it says, in the beginning God created, that was me. And when it comes to the end of Malachi, that, that last prophet before 400 years of silence, before Jesus' arrival, the last verses of Malachi talk about the great day of the Lord. That's God being with his people. It's talking about Jesus. It's about him. And so if you read the whole Testament without looking through the lens of it all being about Jesus, I mean, just, just think about it for a second. It's just not good news. It's not a great, the Old Testament without Jesus, to be quite frank, there's some really cool stories in it, but it's not good news. Because it's not a story of a hero who shows up, who saves, who restores, who redeems, who finally crushes evil. Now you read the Old Testament without Jesus, and it is, oh, it is an incredibly reliable story, but the only thing that's reliable in the story is the faithlessness and sin of humanity. And yeah, there's still miracles, and God does show up, and there's these glimpses of glory, but everything that happens is just missing something because it doesn't come to a final resolution. I mean, even like, like you look at like the book of Nehemiah and they're like, they rebuild Jerusalem and like everybody comes back. You're like, hey, hooray! Oh, yeah, but then like the Romans showed up later and like destroyed everything. Well, that's not good news. That can't be the new heavens and the new earth and that can't be the, the new city. And so the, the Old Testament without Jesus is, is not good news. It is an absolute tragedy about sin, failure, inconsistency. And so if Jesus hadn't shown up, we'd now be a couple thousand, 2,400 years removed from God saying anything. And we'd really, if, if nobody would heard from God in a couple thousand years, if God hadn't acted, if God hadn't shown up, I think we'd all start to doubt his reliability a little bit, wouldn't we? But that's not what happened. See, for the Corinthians, if they're worried if Paul's not reliable, maybe they're worried God's not reliable when he's delayed. And so I'm just so thankful that like, if you go through the Old Testament, you don't have to wonder if God's shown up. See, when sin entered the world, God promised to crush Satan in Genesis 3. In Genesis 11, God says all the nations of the earth will be blessed through, through the seed, uh, through, through one person, one man. In Exodus, God saw that his people were enslaved and he saves them. He takes them out of slavery. He leads them through wilderness and he takes them to a promised land. And when, when kingdoms rise up and kings and leaders and politicians stop leading with integrity, God promises that a king will come who will lead with righteousness and justice. And when people turn to religion and sacrifice and all they find is, is hypocrisy and legalism, God makes a promise and says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to put the law of God on your hearts. 
and I'm going to give you a perfect high priest who will stand in between you and God and bring you back together. And if we're wondering, did God do all that? Did he fulfill those promises? In Jesus Christ, the answer is unequivocally yes. And so, these verses close with God's promises being true in Christ and God blessing us through Christ, that, that, that our sin separates us from God, but our Savior brings us back together with God so that we can not in sin and shame and brokenness run from God, but with boldness and courage, we can run to God. And it says that we can utter and confidently declare amen, which is Hebrew for it is true or so be it. And what are we saying is true? What are we saying it should be? God is good and God is glorious. And we get to do that because Christ's current position is in the throne room of God petitioning for us as our advocate. And so what does that mean for us now? Last two verses. Verse 21 and 22 says this. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so I hope that while we see that, yeah, we're broken, we're inconsistent, we're unreliable. Yes, God is good, God is perfect, He's reliable. God's answered all of His promises, yes, in Jesus. That good theology can also help us understand our biography. That if you are in Christ, these verses say a few things about you. So yeah, it's, it's true that you're weak and inconsistent. It's true that I'm weak and inconsistent. But guess what? Praise God in Christ, that's not what defines us. These verses and our identity is what defines us. And it says the entire Holy Trinity has worked together to ensure that we would endure to the end. That means it's not on us. It says right here, God the Father, who earlier in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians rather, is called the Father of mercies. It says he establishes us. Who's the us? It's Paul. It's the Corinthians. It's every church from Corinth until today. It's me, it's you, it's us. He's brought us together that, yeah, we're weak and inconsistent, but he's established us and built us as a gospel community. As he establishes, that's a word that means he's building up a people, but the word also doesn't just mean built up, it means roots that go down deep. So we say, like our prayer for this year is that we would remain steadfast. Well, we can, we can pray that prayer knowing that God establishes us, builds us, so that we would stand firm to the end as part of God's family of grace and of mercy. He also says that we're united with Christ Jesus. So God the Father establishes. He unites us with Christ Jesus, God the Son. He says that we're anointed for him. And so if your identity is in Christ, it's not just a new position you have. It's a new purpose we have together. When we're in Christ, he says we are anointed. That's a, that's a don't throw that word around. Anointed is a term reserved for kings, prophets, and priests at the time of their commissioning or their inauguration. And so it's, it's sacred. And what that means is that when we are in Christ, we've been given 
anointed with a divine purpose to be people who love and serve and care for one another and point one another to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how is that anointing? What is that anointing? It says it's by the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It says, says God's shown us his intentions for us by giving us the Holy Spirit, that God's past faithfulness in Christ is now confirmed with God's present guarantee through the Holy Spirit that we will endure to the future. So there's these two big words we can tell, hold on to here as we close, that we are sealed and we have a guarantee. See, sealed isn't like Tupperware. See, a seal, right? That, that, is, a, that is a signet ring that the message that the royal king has written out that says, you will endure to the end, has been stamped with his signature, has been sealed by him, by his royal authority. It is a mark that the message is reliable and true, and it's like a brand, meaning you are owned by God. So if you're worried about being abandoned, if you're worried about your sin, if you're worried about your brokenness, know that you are not an orphan. You are not an alien. You are a citizen, you are a saint, and you are in the family of God. You are owned by God, possessed by God. And that should give you hope and that should give you peace. And it says that he's given you a guarantee. The word here actually means down payment or deposit. A down payment means you're gonna go ahead and keep making payments. It means that when you've been saved by God and you're wondering like, yeah, no, I know I was saved at that moment. Like in, in a few minutes here, we're gonna have some baptisms and people are gonna you know, uh, pledge their allegiance to Jesus. It's not like that was a one-time deal where you got some grace from God. God's gonna keep making payments of mercy and grace over and over and over as your sin continues. See, it's also a pledge like engagement. See, engagement's a beautiful thing because engagement says there, there's, there's love here, there's, there, there's commitment here, but it also echoes that something better is yet to come. And so right now, we're experiencing just an earnest money amount of the Holy Spirit, of God's mercy and grace to us. And he wants us to anticipate a forever future that is better than our present today. And so I hope that we can know that we're not gonna finish our race dependent on ourselves, but on God who's sealed us, who's given us a guarantee. And I, and I hope that that leads us to be people of humility and gentleness and kindness. Where we, when we look around and we see inconsistency or weakness, and we're like, yeah, that makes sense because I am too. And it leads us to humility and it leads us to actually um, give one another the benefit of the doubt as we curiously seek to know and understand our brothers and sisters in Christ. And know this, we, we do not endure ourselves. We've been established by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who builds us up, it says, builds us together, propels us on his mission so that we can continue and endure with a guarantee that we will make it to a glorious finish line as we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.